This podcast is created by Cecilia Cardenas Ibarra, Maud St. Pierre, and Jane Hackett in FEM 1100C, Introduction to Women, Gender, and Feminism, offered by the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies from the University of Ottawa. We wish to thank our professor, Radami Zaki, and the U Ottawa Community Engagement Team, Community Service Learning, CSL Program, for all their assistance in making this podcast. We also wish to thank Jonathan Deegan from the University of Ottawa Library for their assistance. We would also like to take a moment and acknowledge that we are working on the unceded and unsurrendered lands of the Algonquin peoples. We respect them as the traditional keepers of this land and are grateful for the opportunity to engage in such an important discussion on their lands. We also recognize that this land acknowledgement is just a very small step towards reconciliation and must be combined with action and allyship in order to bring about meaningful change. Do everyone in the podcast want to go around and just introduce themselves really quick? So I'm Ode. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. I'm a U Ottawa student obviously and um i've always been interested in everything that's like environmentally friendly i try to be as zero waste as i can um so that's why i'm really excited to hear everything that we're going to talk about today um my name is cecilia um i use they them pronouns um and yeah i'm just excited to be here and uh learn a little bit about someone else's experience um with you know the economy environment and all of those things. So yeah, super excited. Thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Jane. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm a first year student at U Ottawa in conflict studies and human rights. Um, and I am really excited to be here today to have this discussion and to kind of expand my understandings of intersectional feminism and how it relates to climate and economics um, and racial justice and gender justice. And so I'm really excited to have this discussion. Uh, our first question is feel free to please introduce yourself feel free to say whatever you think is important to mention about yourself uh, your name your pronouns what you've done in your life and why we wanted you here yeah thank you um so hi i'm squawkwash uh squawkwash translates to sunshine in my language dunston moore my pronouns are she and her um, I am Nikolaum and Yakima. I'm from Lytton, BC, which is in British Columbia, about four hours north of Vancouver. Um, I am a community climate justice coordinator at Videa, which is a nonprofit based out of Victoria, BC. I am also a Indigenous clean energy. No, sorry, I am a Generation Power intern at Indigenous Clean Energy. I am also a member of the Youth Advisory Group at CCNESCO. Uh, I just participated in the 12th Youth Forum as the Canadian delegate this year. Thank you for having me. My name is Kat and I am the Executive Director of the Foundation for Environmental Stewardship. Um, we are a youth led youth serving registered charity that operates here in what's currently referred to as Canada. I've been in the space for a while, but not in the typical climate change trajectory space. Um, I come from a business background, really passionate about social entrepreneurship and the intersections between climate and social justice. It's, it's two issues really 
bonded together, I think. And I'm just really excited to be here. I'm tuning in from Mohicanstis, and that's Treaty 7 territory, otherwise known as Calgary, Alberta, um, adjacent to the Tsutsina Nation. So um, also wanted to um, do a land acknowledgement for myself as well, but very excited to be here. And hopefully I'll be able to share um, something useful to you folks today. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you so much for being here with us today. To start us off, um, in our textbook, there's a phrase or like a quote um, that we pulled from the book um, that mentions that earliest learning comes from imitation. Um, and so how would you say your earliest life and your family have influenced your sense of self, your career aspirations, um, and your ideas about feminism, sustainable economic development, and gender and racial justice? That's a really good question. It's so big. You can answer it. I, I know I can answer it so many different ways. Um, I grew up in a single like parent family. My mom raised us by herself and just seeing like such a strong woman figure that kind of like really led me to be as independent and as strong as I am today. And I know growing up, I never thought I would be in the climate sector. I, when I was younger, I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> so this is like a huge difference um, from what I thought I would be. But honestly, the work I'm doing today, I cannot see it go any other way. And uh, I'm just really happy to be where I'm at. Um, you know, you're right in, in when we talk about like imitation um, and we look into mentors and examples as being these really key influencers of our life. Um, if we look into concepts like family of origin, 90% of your personality and who you are has developed by the time you're age of seven. That's incredible to thinking to think about. So um, every time someone is going into this work, I really encourage them to reflect on their family of origin and trying to figure out like what history they have experienced in order for them to be able to fully experience being in the climate justice human rights space um, because that feeds into this work now for me i'm a second generation immigrant i'm a woman of color my parents came to canada with a hundred dollars in their pocket um two kids and my mom was pregnant with me at the time so i can't imagine that was very easy and to be honest when we first moved here we lived in poverty. Um, we lived in a small little apartment. My parents were working all these jobs. My parents would have to sell bags of clothes just to buy us milk. And it was kind of these things that really led me to think about migrant justice and issues as they pertain to immigration and actually like moving to Canada and how to make this space more equitable for people moving in here. And then it also made me think a lot about privilege. Now, my experience with this, and I like to be really candid about my experience, is that my parents were always very concerned about drawing too much attention to our race. So instead of necessarily that celebration of race that a lot of people of color get, um, I think this is very common with, with Asian folks, is that we try to assimilate <laughs> as much as we can and blend as much as we can. And we are told from a very, very, very young age that in order to be successful, we have to be very proximate to whiteness. So I spent actually a lot of my younger years asserting that, wanting to differentiate myself from my race, from my womanhood, and just from my culture in the attempt to be more accepted societally um, and kind of almost 
you know, rejecting these core parts of myself. And only very recently have I been able to reclaim that. And it's been a journey. So I, I would love to preach and say, yes, womanhood and feminism and all of these things. But I think we also need to recognize the lived experiences of women of color when historically they've been told so long that they need to blend in. And now all of a sudden we're shifting this, this dynamic into saying, celebrate who you are. That's actually really difficult. Um, to now almost reject that family of origin experience and marry it with what should be happening and that normative experience of being a woman and being a woman of color. So um, that's why I love, love, love talking to other women about this, other women of color about it, um, because now we're in a place in society where we can celebrate softness as a strength. And I think that's really beautiful. So that's my journey with feminism. Um, and now recognizing like we need to reclaim all of this, you know, th that that's my assertion and that's my mantra um, because so far all of the decisions that have been made so far have been at the expense of women, have been excluded women, it has excluded people of color. So these same systems that have perpetuated these problems obviously don't work and aren't going to come up with the solutions to fix the problems that these current systems uphold. So that's my rambly way of talking about this, but that's my, that's my history and family origin. Awesome. Yeah. So actually, that's a great leeway to our next question. Um, so with that in mind, with the whole like reclaiming your culture, your background, your womanhood, how would you say that that has now impacted your work and how you work where, um, within your community and helping others? I think at the core is really empathy, meeting people where they're at. Um, at the time when my family moved to um, to 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 where we live today, to Canada, um, it was very much, we had to meet a standard that didn't mean us where we're at. We had to like uphold and try and be a part of this patriarchal system as much as we can. And I think we need to kind of change that mindset and recognize that not all the knowledge is held in these current systems. A lot of these knowledges are held in these communities of people and these cohorts of people that have so much knowledge, but we in so far have been unable to access them because we always expect them to meet them where we are at. And that really tries to inform my work um, through climate work, um, through the way we fund grantees, and through the way we just even speak to people. It's not always about asserting what we think and asserting what we believe. It's just opening up a space for them to share and to learn and kind of uphold that knowledge and then meaningfully transition that into something like actionable and tangible that we can implement. Um, and empathy, you know, there are times when I'm sure people look down on, on on, on my family simply because they didn't know a language. But then again, I look to my family, they know four languages versus somebody else that knows one. Um, so empathy is a big part of it. And just meeting people where they're at instead of expecting everybody to do the same for you. So I'm indigenous. Um, I'm indigenous to both Canada and the US. I'm American and Canadian. And on both sides, um, just lear learning and living off the land is such a huge thing. So even though, even though I said I didn't ever plan on being in the climate sector, I was already learning how the land takes care of us and how we take care of the land and what corporations were doing back then. And so it kind of just goes really into what's happening now too. Um, yeah, obviously you come from a culture that takes the hurt like very um 
it takes care of it very preciously and I admire that. Um, I was wondering if you did uh, face any barriers in your field by either being a woman or a woman and um, your culture. If so, would you believe some of them to be related to that? Yeah, there's, I know I don't personally see the barriers just because I'm not on the front lines, but I do know the front line land defenders, they are, they feel it all. And I'm just so proud of them because they do such amazing work. And a lot of the work that's done physically protecting the climate is because of them. And especially with women, um, the gender-based violence that happening around the world is insane. And I'm, because it's the 16 days of activism right now, it's so cool and so amazing just to see the awareness and all that going around that and hopefully seeing a shift in that soon too. You know, that's a great question. <laughs> because that's something that I try not to pay attention to, to be honest with you. Um, I was very lucky to have incredible mentors and I was a very hard headed person that was stubborn. And I maybe had blinders on to all of these things because I was very much in the belief that those things will only slow you down. And I'm not saying that that is a good mentality, but that what that did allow me is to assert myself in spaces and figure out very quickly um, that you have to almost claim the spaces that you want to be in. I know that's not the case for a lot of women. Um, and one thing that I would say is more so a barrier to my access and that's so the opportunities that were provided to me was more so the own mindsets that you adopt as a person of color or a woman that even though you assert yourself in these spaces and other people outwardly may look at you as successful or whatever, or all these things, there's always going to be this internalized notion hearing time and time again, that you don't belong in this space. And it's something that internally racks your brain all the time. And it just leads to this imposter syndrome. And, you know, sometimes it does come to fruition externally um, in just the way that people comment about you. I have been told in the past when I was talking about comms and PR and all of these things, and I was just looking for tangible advice on how to communicate. And one of my male mentors said to me, well, at least you're a good looking person. So it doesn't matter what you say. You know, that's an incredibly offensive thing. And how do you respond to that? Like, is that a compliment? Is that an offense to me? Is that saying that I suck, but at least I look a certain way? That's hugely problematic. And then that was in relation to my gender. And then in relation to my race, I get comments um, from both sides saying that I am not Canadian enough to understand the Canadian context because I do not reflect a white settler image. But at the same time, you also get these comments from other people that say, I am just a model minority that's puppeteered by white capitalists and I don't you know, deserve any merit from being in these spaces. So you get criticism from all sides of the wheel, all sides of the spectrum, and now not knowing who you can answer to. And then that's when we have to once again reclaim our spaces and know that we only answer to ourselves um, when it when it comes to being a woman of color or just just anybody that feels like they have some imposter syndrome. So it's it's been an internal barrier. I would say more than people actually putting these barricades in front of me because I've had so many advocates and accomplices in the space to help navigate through this all. Um, so now we're entering the discussion. So it's like open mic for everyone. Uh, feel free to jump in at any time. Uh, 
we were wondering how, according to you, how has COVID-19 impacted the economic sector, uh, specifically in regards to impacts on uh, sustainable economic development? So many, so many, so many, so many ways. Um, so first of all, I work in the nonprofit sector. Um, the amount of nonprofits that were hit hard by the pandemic is really, really saddening. Unfortunately, I can't remember the statistics off of the top of my head, but it's incredible to think that people were relying on nonprofits um, for things like homelessness, health, mental health supports, and everyone was expecting nonprofits and the social sector to do so much, yet everybody else was pulling out funding from these same sectors that they expected resources from. So um, it, it was a huge hit to the nonprofit sector. Of course, it's a huge hit to the economic sector as well. There's a lot of things that tie in with investor confidence and how the economy can move during a pandemic, whether that's travel, whether that's supply chain management, um, whether that's just managing employees and safety, the recognition that now people can almost sometimes abuse remote workspaces um, to the extent that they really make staffing changes and um, because they recognize that if people can't set barriers between themselves and their work, they'll just work overtime. So we don't need to hire another person to do all of this extra work. So economically, it's, it's made a huge impact. I don't think anybody would dispute that. But um, one thing that I do want to comment on when it comes to maybe some insights from the pandemic that we can draw on is that first of all, first of all this idea of social entrepreneurship, this uprise of it. And now it's almost kind of put a highlight on businesses and saying if they don't encompass some sort of like social component to it, it's actually not as sustainable of a model <laughs> to actually have um, because people are now signing more so with values and so on and so forth. It also, you know, mentions a lot about capital. Um, a lot of times with the climate movement and sustainability, we say there's just not enough money for it. But then we look at the pandemic, where did all this money come from? <laughs> You know, it's a it's a crisis. It's a pandemic. The climate crisis is a crisis. It's a it's a pandemic of the earth. And so there is capital. We it's just not moving at the speed and the scale that we need to when we talk about sustainability. And I think the final insight that we have when we looked at this pandemic and the effect on the economy is that a lot of people forgot about sustainability in the short period of time um, when it pertained to the economy um, and when it pertained to health. And people forgetting that health is so, so, so intertwined with climate and um, the environment and, clean, and, and, and and sanitation and all of these things. So people have been responding to the pandemic at the expense of climate. However, climate pollution and all of these crises these exacerbate how we can respond to the pandemic, whether what that's what's happening in BC right now with the floods and transportation issues and supply chains, that's exacerbated by the climate crisis, whether it's air pollution and you know the increasing amount of people that are going to the hospital due to air pollution. Um, so then we get more, more capacity issues when it comes to hospitals. So um, those would be my, that would be my final insight on the intersection between the economy and the pandemic. That was a little bit of a ramble, um, but I'm going to pause it. <laughs> yeah, COVID-19 has taken a huge hit to everything. I'm sorry, you can probably hear my dog. <laughs> um, but COVID-19 has also kind of shown where there's gaps and where we need to fill those gaps that 
how things were happening before COVID-19 cannot continue sustainably. We cannot continue living the way we were just economically, climate-wise. It's It wasn't working then. We've seen the gaps. It's so many people through the pandemic has fallen through those gaps with loss of jobs, with the damage done to the climate. It's We need to start making that shift if we want to start seeing a more sustainable future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you actually touched on our next question a little bit. Um, but has COVID-19 um, exposed any flaws in Canada's colonial and capitalist economic systems? Um, and like, I guess, what flaws would those be? And do you foresee um, solutions to them? You betcha. <laughs> a lot of flaws in the system. Um, how can I count the ways, really? Um, I mean, first of all, when we look at healthcare and accessibility, especially when we looked at rural populations and their ability to access adequate healthcare, that's a huge gap in our system. Um, when we actually look into Canada, it's actually made of urban hubs. Um, urban hubs, Montreal, Toronto, Halifax, Calgary, Vancouver. Um, I guess Whitehorse in the Yukon might be considered a hub right now, but a lot of resources have been focused into these hubs. And now we had to really reflect and talk about like how these rural communities are being resourced, how Indigenous folks are being resourced, and how there are complete gaps in the space and how we're resourcing these types of folks. So that's a huge gap that we're having right now. Um, I think in terms of other gaps that COVID-19 has exposed, you know, like a lack of solidarity has like really been exposed here. Um, whether it's, you know, an access to misinformation, um, whether it's, you know, actually looking at cybersecurity and how that works, um, how people are able to critically think and think about, you know, the media that they are digesting those types of skills, that's actually a gap in our education system that I think needs to be addressed. It's really hard to have social media and access to internet and all these resources, but not train people on how to navigate these resources. It would be the same thing as equipping somebody with a car, smacking the back of the trunk and saying, go without teaching them where the gas pedal is. It's just dangerous. Um, and internet needs to be you know, explained in the same way. Um, we won't just let anybody drive and do anything crazy. So internet people should be trained about how to navigate that information. So those would be the main kind of gaps that I would look at as well. Um, those are obvious ones about the economy and how just completely contingent that we are, like and how undiversified we are in our economy, especially within Canada. Most of our investments are actually in oil and gas and the impact of a pandemic and exports and imports can actually have on an economy. And it really encourages Canada to, divest and diversify our portfolio like any responsible financial advisor would aid somebody and plead somebody to do. But those are just to name name a few, I, I would say, about different exposures that we have that we've noticed that we've been able to see through the pandemic. Yeah. I know personally, um, as an indigenous person, I I've seen these flaws for a long time, even pre-pandemic. And going into the pandemic, I think it's become more visible to a lot more people now, um, what Canada was lacking. And here in BC right now, what's really shown is our infrastructure. Um, we've gone through the BC storms these past few weeks. We've lost major highways. Um, our farmlands are completely flood flooded. Um, some are still flooded. 
I think infrastructure is a huge thing that needs to be tackled right now if we want to have sustainable infrastructure because the climate disaster, not disasters, hopefully not, climate change and climate crisis is going to continue. And if we don't make our infrastructure sustainable, then more money will just continue to be going to rebuilding and fixing everything up. Absolutely. And, you know, you talk about like divesting the economy from like the monopoly that oil and gas has on our, you know, capitalist system. And my next question um, kind of relates to that in the sense, um, I guess, are your understandings of feminism and sustainable development and climate justice, are they compatible with um, Canada's current colonial and capitalist economic systems? And why or why not? And do you envision alternative economic structures that would better support um, feminism and sustainability and gender and racial and climate justice? Oh man, what a good question. Maybe I should have done more time to reflect on all of this. You know, I think to be candid, I don't know. <laughs> I, I really, I, I don't, I don't know, um, because for two reasons, with feminist cultures and feminist ideas, I think there's so much merit and hope in them. And I think when we look to our future, this is where our hope lies, the proper and appropriate integration, the meaningful integration of these principles, um, whether that's celebrating softness and woman, um, and a more matriarchal structure. Those have been very, very, very successful in the past. I wouldn't dispute that. However, I do think that the complete rejection of capitalism is also dangerous. And the reason being is because in my opinion, and I, I tend to be a little bit of a moderate, is that I think the complete rejection of a certain model is never actually wise. Um, for example, when we have the perfect, the per, I guess not a perfect example, like an example is the full rejection of communism. Um, there's good principles everywhere. Um, however, taken to an extreme and the reliance on one singular model to push an economy, to push society, to you know, motivate people, that is not good. We need to diversify these models. And so far, we've been so reliant on these capitalistic systems, these patriarchal systems, then no wonder it's not working. We're not taking advice from anything else. We're not piecing this together in a meaningful way. Like we can argue about capitalism as much as we want, but we were able to innovate a lot through that, through that model. I don't think necessarily the means justify the ends, but it does motivate people really fast. So I don't think we can fully reject it. And when we talk about the speed and the scale that the climate crisis needs to be addressed, we do need fast innovation. However, once again, are these two models compatible? I don't know. I really, really don't know. I think it takes advocates on both sides in order to be able to mold and balance that together. Um, and right now, we are way, 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 way too heavily leaning on these patriarchal and capitalist models. It just doesn't work. So we need to kind of shift our Overton window back to these feminist structures. And I think that's what that's what's happening right now. We need to be shifting back and saying like, this is something, everyone thinks that the middle is here. I know it's a podcast, you can't see where my hands are, but the middle is in a certain degree, but no, the middle is actually way, way far out off the screen. And what people might be perceiving as radical isn't necessarily radical. 
It's just where things have ought to have been for centuries and centuries and 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 so long. Um, so once again, this is my my way of not answering your question. <laughs> um, but this is my way of saying I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not an economist, so I'm not entirely sure. But I think the complete outright rejection of either or is not good. But I do think we are leaning heavily, too heavily on the patriarchal and capitalist systems. And I do think that the systems that perpetuated the problems of, you know, racism, sexism, and the climate crisis are not going to be the same systems that are going to allow us to solve the same crises. Um, we need to try new things. And for me, that future is in feminist and more communal models of sharing and learning and living in solidarity with each other. I was very excited for this question because um, it's so big and so broad. Right now, the colonial system does not work. Um, that's why there is a huge push for decolonizing. And I understand when people hear the word decolonize, it, it sounds scary because we've lived in this system for so long. But decolonizing our life is just one step forward, not to only rec reconciliation with Indigenous people, but to create the sustainable future, to create a future that is on clean energy and not oil and gas based. And taking that feminist approach to that, along with decolonization, we will see a future where we're not only equal, but we're, we're we each, everyone, um, it's just an inclusive space for everyone. Everyone has the same opportunities. There is no um, holdbacks for disability people because right now they face a lot of lacking in support from not only the government, but from work systems as well. So for all of us to come together and to have this future where we're all able to thrive would we need to take that decolonized and feminist approach, I believe. To add on what you said, um, I'm from Quebec and lately I've been seeing something pass on social media um, that women in Quebec have been working for free technically since uh, the beginning of December because of the like wage gap and stuff. So I think it's very important to just like stop uh, this idea that men are super superior, that money is everything and stuff. So according to the Canadian Women's Foundation, the gender pay gap in Canada is a real and long lasting crisis. So on average, Indigenous women make 65 cents to the dollar, racialized women make 67 cents to the dollar, uh, newcomer women make 71 cents, and women with disabilities make 54 when compared to non-disabled men. Um, what has to change in order for marginalized women to be better supported in the workforce as employees and as leaders in their sectors? You know, sometimes the questions are complicated and the answers are simple. Pay them. Like, I, like you know, just pay them. I, I'm, I'm so sorry, but no, no, I'm not sorry. I um, should not be apologizing. So if women get paid the same freaking amount as a man. Um, but like culturally, I think corporately, people need to do an audit of their organizations and not say it's in the onus of the woman to bring this up. It is the onus of the corporation. It is the onus of governments to ensure that this problem is not exacerbated. Um, 
pay them, <laughs> you know, just, just pay them. It, it's, it's ridiculous that we're still talking about this issue um, because it's been clear in terms of like the amount of leadership that women have um, boards with, with women actually have a less amount of corruption on them. Um, if that's not a reflection of, of how integral women are to these corporate spaces, I don't really know what is. Women prevent you from doing illegal work. I, that's the minimum, I would say, and yet we don't pay them enough. Um, and then another, another point that I want to make about women in the workplace, too. Women actually make up 52% of the population in Canada. It would be, it's alarming to me that so many boards and so many organizations do not have a workforce that reflects this. That's just irresponsible. You know, that's just not financially responsible. You're ignoring half of the world's population. That's crazy to me. Um, but there needs to be education on this as well. A lot of people that invest in different um, corporations, organizations, most of them actually would not change their portfolio if they found out that their boards, that, that, the boards of the organizations that they invested in did not have a gender equal board. That's actually, that's an education problem. Um, that information needs to be more readily available so people can access it and make sustainable investments to encourage corporations um, to be able to make those internal changes because when they see their investments come down, guess what, they're going to be able to react. Um, I don't wanna put too much pressure on the community to have to keep corporations accountable, but that might be one method to do it. And also empowering women. Every time I talk to women, it's so important to have like your own kind of personal board because a lot of women are too afraid to ask for raises. They experience imposter syndrome. They don't assert themselves in their spaces and they don't claim positions that they are more than qualified for. Um, for example, I think men, when they look at a job description, they say, as long as I meet maybe like half of the requirements, I will apply. Woman, it's like, if I don't meet all of them, then I'm not going to apply because I'm not going to get it. That's a huge problem. You know what I mean? Because that already signals that women are not going to assert themselves in a way in, in a way to just apply for a job. So how are they going to assert themselves as it pertains to salary? So I think it's education, it's empowerment, and just doing the darn thing. Um, like, time's up. Really, and like, I would love to, I would just love to see this change sooner rather than later. But that's why there's great women like yourself. Um, and I think more people that are entering the space because they know it's a problem, it's an issue. I think the start is taking that decolonized approach. Um, once everyone like just starts that, it's and because decolonizing is a lifelong process, we've lived in a capitalist world for our whole lives and even for people who have been in all the different sectors right now they have lived in this capitalist world and and colonial world once we start breaking down those barriers and start opening up spaces safe and inclusive spaces as well because people indigenous people anyone can only thrive if they they feel safe and included and so having those safe inclusive spaces is a must to open up the even the topic of decolonization because you can't just start talking about it walls will go up and nothing will be done it's it's just it's taking that time to build relationships and it's really starting to create those safe places for everyone to work at
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like within um, kind of, you know, Canada's um, conversations about decolonization, there's this um, attitude, especially within the government of like supporting decolonization within the structures that our colonial um, like institutions are built upon. And it's really counterintuitive in a sense, because you can't you can't begin to think about decolonization without supporting land back initiatives and clean energy and kind of fostering, you know, redistribution of like economic wealth into communities instead of these, you know, capitalist gains that are meant to just boost the economy and end up leaving people behind. So um, absolutely, I think decolonization is such an important step in making sure that, you know, our workplaces are fair and supportive and safe. Um, and so I guess within Canada's economy, um, marginalized women are often viewed as untapped resources um, whose work can benefit um, economic growth. And so I guess the question is, does this mindset reinforce colonial perspectives? Um, is it harmful or beneficial to marginalized women and communities? Economic growth in itself is a colonial aspect. Um, if we were to decolonize economic would definitely look different from what we view it today, as well as resources. Um, right now, resources are, our natural resources are overextracted, and the, it's the governments and corporations that are doing that. I think if we were to take a decolonized approach to this, it would look some, something completely different than what we could even imagine. And I think that's where that uncomfortable part begins and starting that new structure that I know I don't even know what it would be. <laughs> I mean, it's a very capitalistic, capitalistic system to view people as commodities, right? Um, to view people as you know another wheel in the, in the system. And then if you take them out, it's like not good, but if you put them in, we can make it better and all these things. Um, so I think, first of all, when we talk about colonial systems and capitalistic systems, we just need to steer away from viewing people as commodities, um, viewing people as resources, a means to an end. Um, that's hugely problematic. Um, and, and, and I think that's the point that you're getting at, right? Like women, women and marginalized communities, they should not be perceived as a means for an organization to garner more profit or become more successful. They are the end of themselves. So we have to look at people as community and look at them and say, if we want to be in service of this community, how can we be most impactful? Whether that's providing them a resource through business, whether that's starting a nonprofit, whether that's community volunteering, why are we actually in this space? And then when we look at it that way, if we're really going to be in service of our community, it makes sense that marginalized people, marginalized women would need to be included in that process. Um, so it's more so how can I as an organization really be in touch with the community. If we don't have marginalized women in our spaces, then we can't be impactful as a business, as a, you know, as a, as a society, as a community. So let's include them because they are the end that we are trying to serve. They're this node that we are trying to serve. And I think this is where this whole mindset needs to change. So marginalized women, seeing them as a resource, I think it's an inevitable. I think you know, it might be potentially good framing for now to get them in these spaces. However, this cannot be the narrative that carries forward. It needs to be, it needs to be said as 
it's the do or don't. It's not just a checkpoint. It says you just have to. You just have to have these spaces in order to be an impactful community member. And then that's it. Um, not as a means to an end, but an end in itself. So let me know if that answered your question. But um, sometimes I get too meta. <laughs> no, yeah, that was perfect. Thank you. Um, more specifically within, you know, climate justice initiatives, why do you think it's important to include women uh, in the development of sustainable economies, climate justice initiatives, and how does the promotion and empowerment of women's leadership and agency benefit sustainable economic development and growth while protecting the environment and the climate? Well, um, there is an organization called Project Drawdown, and they name 80 solutions as they pertain to climate. And actually one of the top solutions, if not the top solution, um, is empowering women. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. For, so first of all, education. Education is huge in advancing climate justice and the climate crisis. The more education you have, the more power you have. Um, allowing women to have autonomy over how they decide to energize their homes is actually really huge and it's not very common, common in developing countries as well. Um, typically, women also are have more nurturing kind of sentiments as well. And that's actually plays huge in the climate space. Um, they tend to, tend to, I don't wanna generalize too much because not everybody is this way, um, but they do tend to reject this idea of nature as a commodity and more so to be in more of a familial structure in union with nature. And that's actually huge. So especially in indigenous cultures and non-indigenous expert, but they tend to actually have matriarchal systems and women leading the charge and being those elders that connect you in spirit and connect you um, to nature. And the reason that women are such great leaders in the space is because they have this kind of matriarchal maternal instinct when it comes to future generations and children. And when we're framing a climate around protecting future generations, that's actually hugely important. We see a lot of people that are actually in the front lines do tend to be women. Um, and that's because they have this in a lot of them have an innate responsibility sense, a tingly, spidey sense um, that, that, that that's the way to go and is the way to go. So without empowering women, um, we really can't achieve that. And finally, just to reiterate, I mean, women take up 50% of the population. So far, everything that we presented so far have been excluding women and that needs to change. You know what I mean? So including women is not just you know, the responsible choice and the obvious choice. It's like the fiscally responsible choice. It just makes the most sense. The same systems that uphold these crazy dynamics and these horrible things cannot be the solutions that will, cannot be the systems that will provide the solutions. And that means these systems need women. I know in indigenous culture, um, we, we call it mother earth. So, the earth in itself is a very feminine um, like energy. And with the colonial systems and the capitalist system we have, with the patriarchy, we can see how masculine energy has kind of just taken over. And we need a balance. Um, you need a balance of masculine and feminine energy. And we can see that right now there is an unbalance. And that's the patriarchy, capitalism, colonialism, and that's why we have the climate crisis. Once we start equaling out that energy, we can, we'll just see a flourish in everyone. And then even then you'll see 
the gender-based violence stats go down. You like we've we've seen how right now we've seen long time how it goes when men are only in power. Women have this other perspective where, and even non-binary people have this perspective that men don't have. And I think all perspectives need to be taken into account. Yeah, I think especially um like fun fact for the listeners, I guess today is December 6th and in Quebec right now uh is uh, the anniversary of the polytechnic like murders, the feminicides. Uh so it's a huge deal for me because obviously being a woman from Quebec, I'm not like a woman in STEM, but I still like I feared for my life for the longest time. And now I think it's time for us to just like regain this power. And especially towards like environment and climate, I feel like women have always had this need to like nurture everything around us and just take care of everything. Um, at least that's how I am. Maybe I'm just stubborn, but who knows? Uh, so I feel like women in just uh, in climate justice would be like the best leaders, in my opinion. I do be biased. But yeah, so um, to end of this interview, we have a few more questions. Uh, so when you were younger, were you encouraged by mentors uh, to get into your field and do what you are currently doing? No, um, when I was younger, climate change and the climate crisis wasn't really talked about. Um, I had heard of global warming and that was the extent of it. I also grew up in a very small town. Um, so I had like two teachers throughout high school and that was about it. Um, now though, in the current position I hold at Videa, we do have a elder and another worker who is on our climate team. And each week we meet with him. Um, his name is Andrew Moore. And he, we end the meeting and he always ends it with, we are the ones we've been waiting for. And I find that so inspiring that, because I know when I was younger, I never heard anything like that, especially with climate change. So now that we're working in this sector and just ending off in the, like, this is, we're going to, we're going to change something. It's, it's really inspiring. Actually, <laughs> I did not get mentors until I entered the field. I had no idea what I was doing outside of university, to be honest. I went to optometry school. I thought I wanted to be a fine artist. And then I went into marketing. And then I went to econ. And then I had a business degree. And it was all of these things um, that I wish I had mentors during that time. <laughs> so I think sometimes I'm like preaching and I'm being a little bit of a hypocrite. But because I've lived through that experience, this is why I recommend that you have mentors because I probably would have been in an even better place if I had them. Um, my my trajectory, you know, I, I'm I'm always under this policy where I think certain opportunities do come up that are meant for you. Um, they might not be the perfect thing. Um, they might be just a point in time. But I'm always under the policy that if you're in a space, do it with excellence. If you're volunteering for something, do it with excellence. If you're having a conversation with somebody have a conversation with excellence not to say that you have to burn burn out just to have a conversation um, but just to assert yourself with excellence and eventually your opportunities are going to lead you to where you need to go however to inform if it's excellence or not good to have mentors to keep you in check to let you know what that standard actually is 
Um, but, but that would be be my advice. But for anybody that wants to get in the space, mentors help, if anything, just to rant about the dumb things you're going to go through um, in any type of space. Doesn't have to be business, social sector, volunteering, family, friends. It's always good to have a rant buddy. Well, I guess you did kind of answer our uh, next question, which is if you had any advice to give to younger people uh, from your community regarding leadership and economics and environment, what would it be? Um, but do you have any other advice you would give uh, regarding certain topics or, for example, people like in first year in university, just like us, trying to make um, ends meet? <laughs> Make ends meet. <laughs> I get it. Been there, done that. I lived on toast and sesame seeds for like three months. Um, so I think in terms of like advice, I mean, I mean, if you want to get involved in the space, just start somewhere. You're probably going to hate a lot of things that you're going to start. I definitely did. But if anything, one of the best ways to learn if you're good at something or not is this to try it out and then kind of process of elimination do it with excellence you tried your best move on to the next thing life is fun and it's dynamic so why not expose yourself to all the crazy things that can happen when you're just you you let yourself go out there um my new I'm a little bit of an extrovert so I think for introverted people the recommendation that I would have is just look to people that you aspire to be look to people that inspire you that you that are in spaces that you want to be in and look at what kind of career path that they followed um i know a lot of the space can be a little bit whatever it's like you're hopping around into the, these different spaces but just ask somebody for some advice most people if you reach out to linkedin say hey i just want to have a 20 minute chat with you i'll send you a, like a five dollar gift card for coffee because we can't have a coffee chat ourselves most of them are going to say yes. Nobody is pining out there for you to not succeed. So if you want advice, just go out and, and see where you can get it. Even if 10 people say no, one of them will say yes. And that's already a huge experience. That's how I found out, found out I didn't want to be an architect. That's how I found out I didn't want to be an optometrist. So I talked to them and I said, hmm, this job does not sound right for me. And, and that's how you learn. Um, and then also, I would also say to be successful in the space, just root yourself in community. That, that's really huge. Find your allies and your accomplices and find the energy that you want to be around and see where people are in those spaces and what they do. Um, you can have the most wonderful job in the world, but if you are in a toxic work environment, unfortunately, it's probably not going to work for you. So do surround yourself with good energy and good vibes to, to be able to motivate yourself in these spaces because especially, especially in the social sector, it's really easy to get disheartened. Um, finally, for any youth just trying to navigate the world as, as all of you are if you're in your first year, just try things out. I mean, this, this is me coming from a place of privilege and not needing to work as much. So I had some spare time. Um, to, to try things out, but just recognize that you're young and you are empowered and you have wonderful and incredible and amazing ideas. And don't let anybody ever tell you different. Most innovation in businesses actually start between the ages of 20 and 30. So if you have an idea and you're just like, hmm, I don't know if that's a good one, 
bring it up to an entrepreneurship professor or policy expert or anything. They'll either shoot down your idea or they might uplift you to, to do something. You just know that you have so much knowledge already as a young person. So act on it. Um, assert yourself in spaces. If there's a board opening, board position opening, apply. Who knows? Um, just be there. And when you're there, be there with excellence. Um, excellence means something for different people. You don't have to be a crazy, rowdy person to be excellent. You just have to show up, be there, and focus on your own passions and expertise and move forward from there. Yeah. I think... I know as an Indigenous woman and just a woman myself, it can be very intimidating at times, um, especially when you are in a sector that is predominantly men. Um, I think you have a voice. Everyone has a voice. And as scary as it is sometimes, and even if it shakes, use your voice. And because even if you're saying the same thing as someone else, this is your perspective. You have your own story and someone wants to hear it. Someone needs to hear it. And you, the second thing I'd have to say is you can take a no. I have been applying for things the past few months and so many doors have opened for me and some haven't. And the thing is, if I hadn't applied to the things I have though, I wouldn't have gotten any of them. And I keep that perspective. I was like, you know what? I can take a no. I can, someone can tell me no and I can be okay with that. It just wasn't meant for me to do. And just like Andrew tells me at the end of every meeting, we are the ones we've been waiting for. That was actually our last question for this podcast. Um, so yeah, we just want to say thank you so much. I'm sure I speak for Jane and Maud as well, but I was really inspired um, by what you've shared today. And yeah, we wanted to thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wise words of wisdom with us. And yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> it's been an absolutely incredible experience listening to you and hearing your insights. And I just wanted to thank you for making the time to come out today and share your ideas with us. We really, really appreciate it. I just wanted to say real quick, like, Thank you for joining us. We're so glad that you're here right now. Um, it's seriously like my cheeks hurt right now. Um, I was smiling and laughing the whole back podcast. So yeah, thank you again for being here. Thanks for the invite. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I was really excited to hear from you guys. And this was so lovely. Great way to start the week, definitely. Thank you for listening. This podcast would not be possible if it were not for the generosity and time of Veronica Farmer from U Ottawa, Canada North. Thank you.